Welcome back, universe, to the SFBCPC. That's an abbreviation for Sci-Fi Book Club Podcast. On today's ep, we'll be talking about The Dark Forest, written by Liu Cixin, in Earth Year 2008, and translated by Joel Martinson. I'm your host, Brent Aldrich, and with me as always via holographic projection, it's my co-host, John Love. Hi, John. Hello. John, um, I don't really have anything to say. What's going on over there? Oh, you know, not a whole lot. Just uh, eating my holographic popcorn as per usual. I did notice that you can pronounce the uh, Chinese author's name of this book very well. Yeah, thank you. So kudos um... on that. I've got this like um, voice, my, this this thing that I'm wearing around my neck that just looks like a, a regular tie. It's actually like a voice modulator. So all I have to do is adjust how tight it is around my neck, and I can do perfect accents. Very cool. We're truly living in the future. That's right. This is truly 900 years in your future, listener. For yes, sure. Yes, truly. Uh, 250-ish or whatever years past the scope of the book we're going to discuss today. Oh, good point. No, wait. Never mind. 500. I don't know. Math is hard. 600. Did you also just... You didn't just say nice at exactly the same time that I said nice, did you? Nice. I said it. What's what's that now? It's it's Dyson. I woke up. Woke up from what? Dyson. Where? Where'd you even come in from? Sleeping. I've been sleeping in the in the in the kitchen. <laughs> we have a kitchen. <laughs> we have a kitchen. I'm not eating shitty popcorn. <laughs> You're blowing my mind, man. Anyway, I so I, much I, news. I woke up. <laughs> Emerged. Do you do you have any idea how long you've been sleeping for? Two hours. <laughs> Wrong, Bucko. You must have some hibernation technology in there or something. To to light years? I mean, here, here's that's the thing. A, that's a measure of distance, not of time. Yeah. I actually know that. I think it's funny to say. Good point. Yeah, I I think last time we saw you in the flesh, man, I, I don't even know. I think we were still like on, on sandworms or something like that, actually. It was definitely pre-Wiggler times because that's when I was deputized and tried to search for him. That's right. Yeah. That's when the search for Dyson began, and since then it's continued. That's exactly right. So you're totally unaware of the search for Dyson that has been uh, a a multiple-episode arc throughout the SFBCPC. All I remember is I was was trying to uh, to take a nap, you know, then I woke up. It's two hours. That's in my clock. Dyson, we've been so worried. We've been. Uh, I'm so sorry. There's been an intergalactic search for you. Even Corellan Sweet Tea, sweetest tea in the galaxy sip, has put your face on the back of their bottles to try and search for you. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how deep this goes. I investigated slime trails of multi legged creatures to find you. Yeah. You might have actually been the bounty of that wiggler. I don't think we're ever very clear on that detail. Uh, turns out we're never really clear on a whole lot of stuff that goes on here. But, but nevertheless, the search for Dyson ends. Wow, the search for Dyson. It's finally over. 
Man, I'm. Can, I can finally sleep at night. I haven't slept since you started sleeping. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So you were sleeping in the kitchen. Yes. Yes. I, I took a break in the work, you know, <laughs> as people do. From your work being a teammate, or what work? Being an astronaut, mm-hmm. exploring the universe. <laughs> now, we we looked for you a lot in the time cage, or at least we 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 sent. I think we sent Ray or maybe Steve to go check on you. We don't really leave. We don't really leave. You know, the pod right here. Mm-hmm. But we ask a lot of people if they'd seen you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. We, we, in fact, we ask everyone who comes on the pod if they've seen you. We ask our friends Uno and Dos if they had seen you. They had not. I think we asked Adam last time he was here. Oh, ask Adam? Wow. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was right there in the kitchen. If you just, like, you know, look back. <laughs> I've never even seen the kitchen. What the hell are you talking about? The kitchen, the, the microwave. We have a microwave? Wait, we have a macrowave? <laughs> a macrowave, the best kind. Yeah, you know, we kept some uh, antique here from the Earth, you know, just to see the human's history here. There's microwave. I was inside, inside the microwave. <laughs> you were in, okay. You were... have a sandwich inside the microwave. Were you in the sandwich inside the microwave? <laughs> Maybe. Just like a little, little bread sheet? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, guys. I uh, I woke up. Wow. What's up? That all checks out. Yep. I'm just gonna believe you and move. Let's move on. <laughs> well, um, so uh, Dyson, uh, so John and I, besides continuing the intergalactic search for Dyson, uh, we've still been reading and still been podcasting. Obviously, we don't really have a lot else to do. Honestly. But um, we most recently read the sequel to The Three-Body Problem, The Dark Forest. And um, that's what we're prepared to podcast about right now. So, um, Cool. I remember that book. You remember it? I did. You've read it. I did. Yes. That's why I said I remember it. Well, you could just remember hey, something and not have read it. You go back to that sandwich as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm still in two hours. <laughs> Wait, you're going back into the sandwich in two hours? After this, I guess. After, uh, it's, uh, actually... Is I, this uh, some kind of Cinderella-type curse or what? <laughs> it's not a curse. It sounds like your teammates are controlling more than we thought. Wait, you said it's not a curse? You just, like, just, always, like, every two hours, transform into sandwiches? I just, like, sleep there like a cat. Like a, like a cat. You know, the animal on Earth, a cute animal. So when we first met you, yes. you were apparently from 1980s Earth, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. And did you have the ability to turn into a sandwich when you slept while you were living on Earth? The sandwich is not my, uh, it's my <laughs> it's not your comforter. Physical. It's not me. It's not I your physical. sandwich. I sleep in between the bread of the sandwich. <laughs> Okay. Why are you laughing? I don't understand why you are laughing. <laughs> do, do you like, and sorry, again, I've never seen our kitchen. 
to like shrink down to to be normal sandwich proportions, or is there just like giant uh, slices of bread in the kitchen? I hope it's giant slices of bread. <laughs> my money is on tiny Dyson. Okay. Let's see. Dyson's okay. Is it? Do you have the ability to shrink down, honey? I shrunk the kid style and curl up in a regular size sandwich. Or is, oh, is a it a giant sandwich proportional to to your giant body? It's it's I can transform myself to into a little piece, uh, no, little tiny D, to fit in a normal sandwich, which is uh, eaten by humans. So. <laughs> I knew that I knew that the tiny Dyson theory was correct, John. You you called it. I concede that I was yep, wrong. I get- I get all the Dyson points yeah. for this week. Now I'm happy about that. So, sorry, just real quick. I'm happy that that theory is correct because otherwise, this ship which we own, you know, obviously there's no funny business happening. Yeah, we, no. we own this thing legitimately, of course. Outright. But I'm happy that its previous owners weren't apparently giant people uh, who would have giant loaves of bread laying around. I also I have a lot of questions. Dyson, are your is your shrinking ability um, limited to sandwich based uh, mediums, or can you use this power, you know, related to to other objects? As far as I know, right now, uh, I can I can only become tiny D uh, when I want to sleep when I feel sleepy. Mm. I just call it, you know, when you're sleep. sleepy. And tiny. you'll sleep but, and shrink <laughs> but yes, if, yeah if, if you're gonna shrink and sleep do you do you need a sandwich in the room with you no. i'm wondering like what's the whole process look like do you draw a pentagram on the floor set a sandwich inside of it and then you know shrink down to tiny d and curl up inside or what's the process you slather yourself in mayonnaise slather yourself in mayonnaise first i just i just <laughs> I just call it when I feel really, really sleepy, you know. Honestly, I don't understand how that works, you know. Probably some weirdo scientist in China invented this. Sounds like you had a curse on you, brother. Oh, that's a curse? You, 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 yeah, you might call it a curse. I like it. <laughs> I like it. So, so, yeah. Okay, so as I understand it, John, um, D- Dyson, you feel sleepy. You summon the curse. Mm-hmm. You become a, a little D, a tiny D, a tiny D. a tiny D, a tiny D, a tiny Dyson, a tiny Dyson, and then you curl up inside a sandwich. Is that not, how it works? Not particularly a sandwich. I can just put everything on top of me, you know, like inside the shoes, <laughs> you know, like inside a, a a beer can. It's not necessarily a sandwich. It just that sandwich smelled pretty good. So, the book that we're talking about today we're talking about the book today, okay? Is is really a really sciencey book. True. And so I'm I'm wondering if part of the solution to this D this tiny D mm. problem that we have, okay. and especially with regards to the fact that his clock only went forward two hours, is right. that maybe when he's so small. Uh, time moves proportionately at a proportionally small rate. 
Interesting. That's that's my theory. I remember last time we podcasted about the the previous book in this trilogy. Uh, we did we conducted several experiments, and so I'm happy that uh, we can maintain true uh, r- real rigorous science on the podcast. I agree. I feel like by the end of this podcast, we will have solved the tiny D problem. <laughs> yes, the search for Dyson ends, and the hunt for tiny D continues. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Well, should we get into the, the book, or do you want to keep uh, plumbing the depths of this topic? I'm going to keep prodding as it, you know, I, I feel like the hypothesis right now is uh, sleep is what triggers the curse to summon Tiny D. Maybe we well, can. I don't, I don't know why you guys call this process so evil that, you know, I still won't say it's a curse. It's a, it's more like a ability, you know. An ability. An ability. You, were you born with it? Maybe. I don't know. Well, the first question that I asked again about, yeah, the, the, the tiny D theory was if you had this back when you were in China, or if you got it, like, is it mm. some sort of thing you developed since you've come nine years in the in the future? I mean, I might have all kinds of abilities. The scientists in China planted in me when I was a baby. That might have happened. True. So, like your your other three teammates back from China could have could have been planned any any kinds of technology. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, they are the ones that were sending you through time and space originally when we met you. I think I lost part of memories too. Mm-hmm. There, there were three other teammates. Is that confirmed, or is that? As I recall, when we first met Dyson, he had three teammates in China that were controlling him. And then you, me, and Steve became his new teammates. And trapped him in a time cage. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, I like it because in this book, The Dark oh. Forest, there is a mention of our main protagonist, and I will not be able to pronounce it correctly, hey. but Luo Lu- Ji... Luigi? Yeah, Luigi? Luigi? Green Mario? <laughs> Let's just Green Mario. If if you say Green Mario, we'll know who you mean. That'll Luigi. be a lot easier for Luigi. me. Luigi. Luigi. Okay. Yes, Green Mario. Here's the thing. I'm going to butt in right there. Just put a pin in that, John, because as I was getting through this book, I would say about half of it I read on the page and half of it I listened to the audiobook. By audiobook, I just mean you were reading it out loud and I listened along. But yeah, um, it, going from the page to hearing it pronounced, I definitely have a lot of questions about pronunciation. But continue. Yes. So as I was saying, Green Mario casts a spell, at least from the perspective of Earth in this book, where he... Um, well, I mean, he calls it a spell, and he's one of the wall facers, which is this group of uh, four folks that are selected to basically come up with ideas to defeat the Trisolarians. Uh, and they can't, like, make their actual intent known because otherwise the Trisolarians will be able to basically determine what their plan is, and then it won't be effective. So they keep it internal and try and deceive everybody in the entire world so that the Trisolarians will be deceived as well. But Green Mario, or Luigi, 
he explicitly says that he's going to cast a spell into one of the star through the sun that will destroy a star in the yeah. sky uh, to kind of as proof of concept that his plan uh, will work. And so I feel like Luigi is our friend Dyson here because there are four wall facers mm-hmm. and there are four teammates. Oh. And so the successful wall facer Luigi can be equated to our favorite teammate, the world's favorite teammate, mm-hmm. Dyson. I like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, those other, again, because I was listening to part audiobook and part reading it, I definitely have some opinions about all those other wall facers and characters just based on the accents that were being done uh, as it was read. So you've got Frederick Tyler of the U.S., Ray Diaz from Venezuela, Bill Hines from Britain, and uh, Luo Ji from China. And um, I, I, I don't know. I think that they all, in their own way, um, I, don't, I don't know. There were a couple of them. I would say maybe – here's the thing. I, I need to take a step back from that. I want to say, first of all, because this was – I'm reading a translation from the original Chinese – and this was a different translator than the first book that we read, John, um, The Three-Body Problem. I felt like that first book, I was very impressed by Ken Liu, who was the translator and an author in his own right, at how like easily, like or how easy and good of a translation it felt like to me to read. Um, this one, I felt a little bit different about. Now, I would say... I have a little bit of a question because I listened, like I said, partly in audiobook, partly reading it. And so I felt like these four wall facers, or at least the other three, like Tyler from the U.S., Diaz from Venezuela, Hines from Britain, played a little bit into the characters of like, oh, obviously he's a, he's a U.S., you know, um, like hot and heavy. He wants to make a thousand space fighters and they're just going to blow shit up. And uh, Hines, you know, the like, British guy, a little bit more thoughtful, wants to explore the mental capacity. And um, and Diaz from Venezuela is, is, of course, a little bit of like a South American dictator, dictator type. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I I like those characters, but to me, they definitely felt like they had a little bit of like a, some tropes they were playing out. Whereas right. Luo, Luoji, um, Luoji. Luoji. For, for the translation, the name here, mm-hmm. uh, Luoji, Luo is a family name. Ji is a, a first name. It also rhymes, and it's it's just exactly the same pronunciation with logic in Chinese. Logic. We, we call logic Luoji. Ah. I don't know if it's intentional or not. I think maybe, probably. Mm-hmm. But uh, I found that interesting. Yeah, early on in the book, maybe in like the first hundred pages or so, I definitely remember a few instances of that where there would be a Chinese name and then it'd be referenced by other people that they're talking to by those sort of uh, references you're mentioning, like logic, like, oh, you must be very logical is what they say. And then it's just kind of a brief explanation of, oh, yeah, that's what his name means. And there were footnotes also that explained some of those puns or... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know references that were being made as well there there was a couple other characters that were s- similar i can't remember exactly who they were mainly because i suffered from having mostly read books written in english the english names are just a little bit more distinct to me 
So I don't have the ear to uh, to tell the Chinese names apart quite as well. So for a lot of it, I was just trying to figure out who was speaking based on, you know, what they were actually engaged in or who they were versus yeah. the actual name, like, didn't mean as much to me because I'm an ignorant spaceman. Well, I... I will say reading this book too, because it is the sequel and because it's been a while since we read the three body problem, you know, reading this book, you know, there were a couple times, two things in particular I'm thinking of where, when I got to that point in the story, I, I was like, it was, it was like when I saw, um, <laughs> the force awakens, uh, the star Wars documentary. And it's like, you see like, you know, your favorite character for the first time and like, go crazy um there were because it's been a while since we've read the three body problem but i really did like that book a lot there were two things in particular that happened in this book where when it happened i felt like i wanted to like stand up and applaud you know the first time was when we are in three body world for just a second we aren't in there very much at all in this book whereas in the three body problem a lot of the action happened within that world but the first time that we were in that and there's like, I forget who was there. Maybe Newton or Einstein is in it this time. And, you know, I was like, yes, three body world. We're back. Um, the other time that happened though, and this just relates John to the, you know, who the characters are. The one character again, who, when I realized who it was, I was like, ah, oh, yeah. Add it again. Da Shia. Shia? Shia. Da Shia. That's really good. He was there. He's back. We got to we got to not only stick around in this book. I mean, he was like, I, I felt like he was the one, you know, like touchstone in that first book in terms of just being a regular human guy. He's not a scientist. He's not one of these guys dealing in the hard science. He's just a, he's just a dude. He's just a cop. I'm still not quite sure who he's actually working for. And so when I, when I, and, and in this book, he did this thing where he called him by his family name and first name a lot. And it was a while until we got to hear anybody say like, uh, Dasha. And it's at that big point, shit. it was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Go get him. And then we put him in hibernation and we get to keep him around for 200 years. So he shows back up again. And I was yeah. equally pleased with that. So yeah, anyways. to relate yeah. to relate this book back to the search for Dyson, I felt like I had to wait for 200 years for him to come back <laughs> after he turned into a sandwich I'm or turned into the the filling of a sandwich. I'm sorry, I don't know. Him. So again, but in the same way that Brent was just in the same way that Brent was just talking about, we can be overjoyed at getting to have Dyson back with us in the same way that we get to have Dyson. Big She back with us. Big yeah. shit. Big shit. Yeah. Hey, I, re I remember the thing that we do. Um, now it's time to read a little selection from the last page. So uh, turning to the last page, I'm just going to read the last two sentences. The sun will set soon. Isn't your child afraid? Of course she's not afraid. She knows that the sun will rise again tomorrow. The end. Great. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if that in any way is a legitimate spoiler or not. It's a hard, it's a hard question. Yeah. 
man, because I don't know. I feel like, especially towards the end, well, maybe the last hundred pages or so, mm-hmm. what we thought was going to happen flipped like four or five times. Yeah. And so I don't even know if, if we would we'd be able to get, well, you'd probably be able to guess who was going to say that, but under what circumstances and how like serious they were being, maybe it would still be pretty up in the air. Yeah. You know what? I think that in the three body problem, I felt like I got acquainted to a world that was not going to resolve in the same way as a lot of the other sci-fi that we read. So I think a lot of the other books that we've read have have got like a very kind of positive ending, let's say, whereas the three body problem got really dark and and uh, Yi Wenjia at the end of that book was just like, bring it on, aliens. Um, and... Um, this book, I, I, I think I expected that a little bit more. Like I expected that there would be this kind of overtone of darkness and knowing that this is, this is the second of three books in a trilogy. I certainly expected a little bit more of that, but I agree that last hundred pages, things change so often that when I was that far out, I, I felt like I, at that point I kept reading, like I wanted to move through it quickly. And as much as things kept changing, where I thought it was going to go is not where it went. Yeah. Should we maybe give like some sort of synopsis for this book for the people who are not going to ever read it? If you can, if you've got a good sense of that, go for it, man. Dyson, do you remember much? I mean, would you be able to do something like that for this whole book? I mean, I can do it, but I want want to hear from our sandwich boy. No, I want you to do it. I can uh, help you with a, a background about China, that part, I think would be right. better for the for the people from Earth, you know. Sure. Mm. All right, so here we go. I'm going to do this as briefly as I can, and I I haven't yeah. written down any specific notes or like uh, touchstones, so I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. Five words. Yeah, five words or less. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> that would actually be really difficult. Ten words or less. I mean, five words or less, but they're not. They don't have to form a. They don't have to form a sentence. Okay, Five words or less. Think. It doesn't have to be a complete sentence. Um, and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Five words or less. Subtitle <laughs> doesn't have to be a complete sentence. Can we? Can you guys come up with a theme song while I try and come up with my five words? Yeah. How many words should the theme song be? Uh, maybe twenty-five or so. I don't know. Oh, that, that's also hard. You harder than the five words to sign the book, I think. <laughs> 25. <laughs> oh. In just five words or less, we'll get that summary. In 25 words or less, Dyson's going to have to pee. That's 25. That's 25. I can't do it. That was the theme song. I don't need to. It's just a convenient mm-hmm. rhyme. Deception. Okay. Space war. One okay. is that one word clarification? I don't know. Hold on. Deception. Can... Technology. Two. Space war can be can be two words. Either way you need it, I'll I'll accept it. But then this last one's one word. Gotcha. 
So I believe that five words or six words does not help the audience at all. So. Okay, well let's let's break that down. What okay. did I say? Deception, deception. space war. Uh, deception technology, space technology. war, gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, let's break that down, actually. Yeah. Okay, so deception. As we already mentioned, there were the four wall facers, which at the end of the last book, it came to light that the Trisolarians were this super advanced uh, civilization that were going to be traveling about 400 years to Earth to to live there and therefore um, eliminate the population of Earth that currently lives there. Uh, but because 400 years is a lot of time in terms of a technological uh, explosion, by the time they would get here, the Earthlings and their civilization would have such good technology that they'd be able to kill off the Trisolarians. So they sent these Sophons, which I'm still not exactly yeah. sure how they worked, but they basically capped the amount of technological innovation that Earth could come up with. Therefore, by the time the Trisolarians got there, they'd still be able to win. Mm -hmm. So the Earth's plot was to, or one of their plots, mm -hmm. was to come up with these four wall facers. So these four people who, given this unbelievable challenge, were going to come up with these sort of grand schemes and not tell anybody the mm -hmm. true nature of their schemes. Um, because the Trisolarians also didn't know what deception was. Yeah. Uh, Any time that they thought something, it was displayed to the world, so they couldn't hold in any communication. Um, so that's what the, what the wall, fa wall facer's premise was. Um, then they continued to develop a certain amount of technology. So we're going to the tech section there, yeah. uh, just enough to where they thought they actually might have a fighting chance against the Trisolarians, and so. Earth actually entered a kind of a second golden age, a second renaissance, and seems totally prepared to handle the Trisolarians. Mm -hmm. Then space I, war. Yeah. Go ahead. You want well, to interject? I just, I, I, we don't have to talk about this now, but I, I'd at least like to put a pin in that technology section just for we just now, or if you want to keep explaining your five words, that's great. Yeah, we got to get out of this segment soon. Okay, man. great, great, great. <laughs> then, then, and then we'll come to everybody's favorite segment, uh, put a pin in technology. Perfect. All right. So space war, um, there was one probe sent way out ahead of the Trisolarian fleet that the entire space force of Earth was ready to attack. So they were going to accept it, um, then learn kind of something about the Trisolarian technology. And anyways, they were going to wipe out this probe. Well, it turns out the probe actually destroyed the entire space fleet of Earth and then everybody got um, very upset again and didn't feel like there was anything they could do, mm -hmm. etc. Everything started to break down on Earth again. Uh, and then the gotcha part, mm -hmm. one of our wall breakers, Luigi, mm -hmm. or Luigi, or Green Mario. It doesn't matter. He kind of combined the plans of a lot of the wall facers and essentially had a, a weird sort of death pact with the Trisolarians, where he was going to relay the fact that that both Earth and the Trisolarians existed in this particular section of the Milky Way galaxy. And he goes in this really elaborate, um, logical puzzle about 
if other civilizations know about you, then they're probably going to kill you or you have to kill them. Mm -hmm. So the Trisolarians recognized that if he would do this, if he would let them know that they existed, that somebody else was going to come and wipe everybody out. So he got the Trisolarians to come to a peace agreement uh, based on that premise that if he didn't, he if they didn't agree, he was going to tell everybody where they were and then they were all going to get crushed. So that was the gotcha moment uh, put together by Luo Ji, and it uh, deterred the Trisolarians. They, at least at this point, are going away from the solar system and who knows where. So that's five words or less. <laughs> wow, thank thanks. you. That's how we play five words or less. I'm going to take a nice long sip of Corellan sweet tea, the sweetest tea in the galaxy sip. All right, I'm, I'm and we're back. Segment. Um, well, then I am going to go into the next segment. Put a pin in technology. What I wanted to say about that was that just reading this book, I had forgotten, I guess, from the three body problem, just how how much of like a hard science fiction book this is. So, so detailed about every single bit of science and technology that's used, and very early on. I made notes to two different... So maybe this transitions into our other segment, Bore Your Guest to Tears, because there were two books that it reminded me of a lot, and I just wondered what the overlap was. So, well, the two books are Childhood's End and also Ender's Game, in a way. But I want to talk about the Ender's Game one, because I think in Ender's Game, the the story of Ender playing these games, training to wipe out this other sort of unknown extraterrestrial race. And the similarities with this book, with everyone on Earth for a while, especially these wall facers trying to wipe out this, the Trisolarans, there's, there's certainly some overlaps in maybe the basic structure. However, this book feels to me like, well, where Ender's Game was almost all like in Ender's head, and psychological this book has so much detail about the specifics of every bit of technology oh no so in in this book though every little detail was described in what well, every it was described in so much detail that sounds redundant but a couple examples of that so it, it's all the technical stuff i guess in this book that really i'd forgotten about how detailed he was with that stuff so for instance there is one where, let's see, this is Zhang Beihai. Zhang Beihai. Zhang Beihai. Yes. Is, has a pistol, and he's floating around in space, and he's getting ready to shoot those people. And, you know, I think if had this been Ender's Game, for instance, it would have been a very, like, self-aware... Um, you know, dealing with like, am I going to kill these people? Am I not? Am I too much like my brother? Am I, you know? And, um, but in this book, I'm just going to read just a section of it. Let's see. The vast majority of firearms on earth could shoot in space. The vacuum was not a problem because the bullets propellant contained its own oxidizer, but you did need to worry about the temperature of, of space. Both extremes differed greatly from atmospheric temperatures and had the potential to affect the gun and ammunition, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it, it solves that problem. Like, it accounts for all the technical difficulties. <laughs> Later on, the other one that I just noted, but there are several times where this was could have 
I could have made a note of was when they were making that fleet formation to intercept the uh, the water the droplet at the end. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was like the combined fleet was in a dense formation, one that had only ever been used in fleet review. In a normal cruising formation, the ships ought to have been spaced at roughly 300 to 500 kilometers. So a 20-kilometer spacer was basically like, you know, it goes on and on and on. And it's kind of amazing how thorough it is and how much that stuff, like the, the fleet formation, made a difference in the end. Like how those ships were laid out, like that whole three pages of detail that were in the book actually made a difference. And so I'd just forgotten that that was the structure of how he writes, but it's, it's kind of amazing. I, I, don't, I don't know that any other book that we've read has been quite like that on the very like hard science yeah, I don't think any book has at all. Um, and it's weird because that it did make a big difference, like you said, once the droplet started attacking all of the ships. Mm-hmm. But and even then, like when the description of the entire fleet of Earth um, happens, it's broken down to like the speed of the droplet in meters per second. And like every single technical detail of the destruction of these things is laid out yeah to an unbelievably precise degree which is i don't know in some ways um i don't, I don't know in some ways it seems like it's the most uh it's the thing that the author cares about the most almost and it also survives translation the best because there's no like yeah. frivolous descriptors it's all like this is just math so describe it as the way i'm describing it to you because mm-hmm. i agree i also felt like this one wasn't um translated quite as well as the previous book was and i have a very particular instance of that that i can get into later but um but yeah super heavy on the science and uh in in a way that i know it feels like because he has a background as a scientist i believe before he was an author and therefore he really wants to like prove to all of his scientist buddies that he's still got it yeah if if they want to read this book like i didn't you know cut any corners because i know that all my buddies back home are really you know shaking their head at somebody somebody being able to shoot a gun in space at sub zero temperatures Mm -hmm. but i figured it out so Mm -hmm. well a couple things to that i mean i i certainly have an example of where i thought it was a good translation and so maybe we could do a thing in a minute where we do good translation bad translation but um what i want to say just prior to that is um again related to this idea of a very technical like hard science approach to writing as opposed to many of these others that i think have at least a little bit more lighthearted to some extent or like a douglas adams where he's just making jokes constantly i there was just a moment where they when they are actually encountering that droplet just to go back to that too for the first time and ding yi is um, the one who has to touch it first. And there was a moment where I thought, man, if this was a Douglas Adams book, this would this is just the buildup for a joke because, um, well, I'll just read. I can't feel any friction at all, the lieutenant colonel marveled. It's so smooth. How smooth is it? Ding Yi asked. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, like, there's the perfect joke. That's the that's literally the textbook joke setup, um, but but then 
instead of the next line being, it was so smooth, the next line is, to answer that question, Sitsi? Oh, I don't even, I don't even know how to pronounce that when I say it in English. Sitsi took out a cylindrical instrument, a microscope, from a pocket in her spacesuit. She touched the lens to the droplet so they could see a magnified image of the surface on the blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, again, there's a very technical answer to that. But then, again, the next question is, what's the magnification? <laughs> Jingy asked. Anyway, <laughs> neither of them are jokes. They're, they're just, they're, again, they're premises, I think, as you were saying, to say, like, well, did you check the magnification? And, and Sitsin Liu says, uh, yes, I did. <laughs> uh, what did you call the, the segment we're about to start? Into, oh, D, go ahead. I, I might, I might like think that's a, maybe the biggest difference from the sci-fi book from China and from the West. Maybe you know what's that? The jokes are less, more heavy on the technology part. Maybe. Have you? That's interesting. Have you read any others that you think would be like? Is that? I could believe that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's 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 a question that I might want to ask. Uh, uh, you know, later, later second is like, what's the difference between this book and other book from you know the West? You know, what's the biggest difference? I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. Well, yeah, Brent. The way was that part of your segment where it was, I think you called it good translation, bad translation. That's the one. That was All not right. part of the segment. You want to get into good translation, bad translation? Yeah. Yes. Please. Okay. Should we do good translation first? I guess that's how it comes in the title. I've got a bad translation moment. I think. I don't know. I have a good translation. Okay, you go. Welcome back to Good Translation, Bad Translation. Uh, On today's episode, Brent, John, and Dyson. Uh, I think Brent's bringing the good translation. John will be bringing the bad translation. And Dyson will be the judge. Yep, that's a good translation. All right, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and all the people said amen. Um, uh, okay, my good translation. It's on page 210 in my paperback copy. At, at the very top, well, it's literally the first line, so let me see if I can set the stage. This is when Tyler, the American wall facer, is talking to Luoji and explaining his true strategy maybe this is after boy i don't know if this is before or after he's been i think this is after he's met his wall breaker and he's explained to luoji his true strategy and so luoji asks him what that was the specific sentence i thought was a good translation because it was sort of poetic and mm-hmm. describes some things that i you know made me Kind of an illusion, I guess. The sentence is, Luoji felt like a machine for meaningless dialogue. Anyway, uh, that was it. I thought that that was one of the um, clearer translations in terms of like the, the poetic nature, nature of it. I thought a lot of others were maybe a little bit more technical or just literal. But this one conveyed some ideas to me that made me really understand the situation. All right, let's go to our judge, Dyson. Is that a good translation? Yes, that is a good translation. Approved. All right. 
Uh, sorry, this is going to get convoluted. Now we're t- to our bad translation section, the and therefore one. we're into our axe to grind. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Axe to Grind. I'm your host, John Love, and with me, as always, is an axe and a grinder. Um, and inside of this segment, Axe to Grind, we have a very special new segment called is this a joke or what the fuck? <laughs> Everybody's favorite segment. Uh, welcome to Is This a Joke or What the Fuck? I'm John Love, and with me as always is an axe to grind. <laughs> okay. So, and as we, as we all know, this is the bad translation also. So we can jump up that level to, uh, to see the, the kind of grandfather segment that this is all couched inside of. But uh, our boy, D, can you uh, remind me how to pronounce the author's name? Liu Cixing. Liu Cixing. Yes. Okay. So on page 81 of the hardcover, we hear about Luoji's girlfriend, Bai Rong. I'm not sure to pronounce that either. But anyways, we learn we learn about good pronunciation. We we learn about Luigi's girlfriend, and she turns out to be an author. Uh, And she writes romance novels. Essentially, is the way it's kind of set up. But she asks Luigi to write uh, a book for her. Essentially, so anytime here i just got super conscious of the dialogue itself and if it was realistic or not because uh liu chixing i'm sorry i'm sure i it's good mess that up <laughs> but it's... the author of the actual book calls into question this woman's writing and says you know it's a little kind of florally or frivolous and so i was just like hyper conscious of the dialogue for the next like 20 pages and this is a little bit of dialogue after <laughs> Um, well, anyway, so we'll get into it. Uh, so this is from Luigi's girlfriend. It's like you're more talented than I am, Present she said piece. once. <laughs> Present <laughs> piece. I, I hope you heard Dyson's editorial over here. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm catching it. So it's like you're more talented than I am, she said once. You're not revising plot but character, and that's the hardest thing to do. Every time you're adding the touches that make the characters most vivid, your skill at creating literary figures is first rate. Mm-hmm. And nobody's ever spoken to anybody like that in the history of the goddamn world. <laughs> and every, every single section of dialogue for the next like 10 pages seems equally as like just stupid and bad. And yeah. so I don't know if it's I'm being self-conscious or he's making a joke about... Uh, I don't know, like kind of an awareness of the falsification of dialogue in novels or whatever. So my question to you, Universe, is, is this a joke or what the fuck? I think we should turn that to Dyson, our judge. Um, um, I can give you an example about, like, the, uh, uh, to, like, I'll say a, a the dating, you know, a guy and a girl from China. Like, if a guy asks the girl, like, do you love me? You know, but uh, 99% of a Chinese girl gonna answer, not love him or not, and she gonna answer. You take a guess. You know, it's like very abstract, not very ah. specific answers. You know, 
I mean, is that, and is that, that response like a sarcastic joke, or is she? It's a serious response. Huh. I want okay. you to guess, like, and the next she gonna say, you go ask the moon. Ask the moon. Yeah, so it's like, what the fuck, you know? The moon knows, like, what, what, what's going on here? You know, for American guy to understand here, you wow. know? Wow. If like here the same conversation happening here is gonna be like, the guy asks girl, the girl just just gonna answer like three answers, you know? I love you. I don't love you. I don't fucking know. Both of just, you know, all of them honest, you know? That might be the problem this American author huh. having here. That's my guess. Yeah, it could be. I, I don't know. It seemed like that was, it was like that particular section where anytime that Luigi's girlfriend was speaking, it seemed like the most like campy, like, the cheapest romance novel you could ever find type of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if he was like, I, I just didn't really know where that came from. It seemed mm-hmm. like I, I was never as conscious of the dialogue again, because this yeah. book is really idea heavy and science heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just never really questioned that part of the book. Cause it mm-hmm. didn't seem all that important. And then he kind of specifically calls it out. And then mm-hmm. I, yeah, couldn't get past it for, you know, 20 pages or so until it became more, Kind of you know normal Chixin Liu or Liu Chixin uh, the the way that he writes normally, mm-hmm. and so that just kind of blew my mind. And therefore, uh, I didn't know if that was a joke or what the fuck. And uh, okay, bad trans. Okay, well hey. we're not into that section yet. So let's let's close up the old. Uh, was that a joke or what the fuck bag? Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome back to Axe to Grind. I think my axe to grind is slightly misplaced and it might just be at bad translation. So let's close up the axe to grind bag and yep. hop on up to good translation, bad translation. Hi, my name is John. Welcome to good translation, bad translation. Hey, D, is that a good translation or a bad translation? That was a really bad translation. <laughs> and I think that's how we play that's... good translation, bad translation. Mm-hmm. This this reminds me of uh, uh, when I study English. Uh, I think there's a perfect translation. It's it's a special word translation from uh, English to Chinese. Okay. Is the best one I think is uh, it's Jin because Jin is a thing like Westerners found in their uh, biology science. So we we call it. There's an author in China translates the word first ever into China. It's called gene. It basically sounds like gene, right? And it, in China, it literally means basic elements. Gene? Gene. Gene? Yes. It's just ridiculous, you know? It's just, it means basic elements. But that's like the perfect translation, you think? Yeah. The pronunciation, you know, everything. Just, wow. We didn't even play the theme song for everybody's favorite segment, Perfect Translation. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's but, uh, perfect. Anyways, uh, I like in this book how once it goes into its own future, so like 200 years or so from the present that it starts in, the language that exists for all of the earth at that time is a hybrid between Chinese and English. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't know, I mean, that, that perfect translation is a perfect segment to kind of start talking about some of that. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, that yeah, that this book does interesting thing that it does. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that it's an interesting thing, too, when you have, as an author, when you have the luxury of people can just hop in hibernation and then it's 200 years later. So I, I think that was a nice thing. I forget how many years we actually covered within the scope of this book, but it's well over 200 because of that hibernation. And so seeing Luoji and Dashi in the future all of a sudden where they're strangers within that world as well as, as, as us. And they're learning at the same time as we are, I think is a very interesting way to frame just the context of the story as well. What are you looking for? Nothing. I was still kind of thinking about bad translate. I, I don't know if this is a good, all right, here's everybody's favorite segment. Is this a good or a bad translation? I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is when, um, those two lower level operators are communicating to each other on the battleships as they're all being destroyed. And they're, they're saying like, you know, they're friends, they're old friends. They're talking to each other. The one guy's like, Hey, I'm not like, I'm not crazy. Like this is for real. And the other guy says, audiobook, you're a stone cold beast. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's... You'll be the last to go crazy. And so my question is, I don't know if this is a good or bad translation. <laughs> I think it's pretty not good. It's, maybe it's too late maybe though. Joel Martinson maybe Joel Martinson is just a real big fan of professional wrestling in the, the what early 2000s. <laughs> In America, I've studied that a lot. I mean, there's a lot of books about WWE and Vince McMahon. Um, so I, I know a lot about that world. I don't know. Cold, if you're a stone cold beast, brother. <laughs> stone cold beast. That's right. Stone cold Steve Austin. He drank right. a lot of beer. All right. I'm, I'm done with that. <laughs> what was the name of that segment? I don't really know if this is a good or a bad translation anyways. <laughs> All right, moving on. Yeah. When when we get to the future, um well, you know, a, a few well, a few things in this book. I feel like the whole scope of this book, I have these other notes like, oh, here's a forest, is it going to be dark? Uh, oh, here's some darkness, is there going to be a forest? And again, it was it was, you know, pretty far along when we finally get the meaning of that idea of the dark forest uh it was not all like the dark crystal which is what i assumed um but um that was actually where we started with e when gia it's like the only time that we actually see her in the whole book is at the very beginning and you know her as the main character of the three body problem or one of them we don't she's not a figure in this book at all <laughs> other than to set in motion those basic principles that lead to the idea of mm -hmm. the universe as a dark forest. And so to me, again, well, to, to say what I was saying about like a childhood's end or an ender's game, I feel like the difference with this book is that where it's those books, it's like, all right, let's just go out and fight the aliens or whatever it's going to be. You know, this book was like, well, yeah, that's, that's coming down the road, but here's every single technical decision that's made in advance of 
fighting them aliens. And and so that was certainly set in motion by Yi Wenjia mm-hmm. way back in the Three Body Problem at the start of this book. Those ideas, however, that finally get us there don't happen until the very, very end. And so I, I, I do think, again, like just the technical specs of this book are pretty amazing. The, you know, 500 plus pages of how exactly, you know, what exactly would it take to encounter an other in this universe are pretty incredible. And the fact that it took 200 plus years within the narrative. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It is, it's very different than, than a lot of the other books we've read. And maybe Dyson, this is a chance to talk about some of those differences between science fiction from, mm-hmm. yeah, early 2000s China or other places in the West. If, if, if the book um, uh, titled The uh, Dark Forest in America, and maybe there actually there's a dark forest, people going there and do some shit, you know, mm-hmm. maybe there's a monster or something. But here it's just a metaphor. Our, our, the Eastern, Eastern thought is kind of like abstract, I'll say. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I, like, I try, the... I try, I try to, I try to break, the, I always want to say question, trying to break down the question to like, basically, uh, people's like thinking the way they're thinking, the, the way they're living, trying to get down the bottom to understand this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What do you want to say? I was wondering, so like the idea of a dark forest, that is a metaphor that is common to people in China? Like that's like something that's like said often or known or? No, no, it's not. But if I read a title, uh, a sci-fi book title of Dark Forest, I wouldn't assume there's an actual dark forest. Interesting. I wouldn't do that. I just feel like anything dark can be called dark forest. You know. I like that. Because that shows my dumb ass because I literally have notes that are like, page 123, forest, is it dark? Question mark. What are we going to get this dark fucking forest? Yeah. And then, well, the first time that I was like super like honed in on that was when they, in the future, the buildings and stuff are built basically like trees. Yeah. And so there's branches and then like houses, their buildings are leaves. And I was like, oh, that's the forest, I guess. But I don't understand why it's dark. Why is it so light? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, um, I mean, a, a lot of the books that we've read that have titles sort of like that, I guess, are, are always both uh, like a real physical thing and, well, not always, but usually a physical thing and a metaphor for something else. Like the Sirens of Titan yeah. I guess we're just kind of this like object that to be sought. And then I don't know, he kind of punctures a hole in that idea. And then I don't know. I can't think of actually many other examples right now, but Dune. Um, Dune. Oh, guess what? There's <laughs> Dunes. Oh, great. Sand. How, I love it. That was the name of the planet as well. You yeah. know, um, yeah, that's, it's interesting. Yeah. And I was in the same way, like just just always being aware of moments when darkness and forests were mentioned, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was waiting for some monsters to come out of the dark forest. Frankly, <laughs> some skexies. Do Do you want to describe the dark forest and what like the actual things that you and Shia like what she mentioned and how that logic kind of plays out? 
Sure. I mean, at the very beginning, again, it's one of these where we're given the answer at the very beginning, you know, but it, it doesn't become apparent at all for another 500 pages. So Yi Wenjia says very early on, here's this idea, cosmic sociology, the study of alien culture, extraterrestrial culture. And she says there's two basic items that describe that. One, survival is the primary need. And two, civilization continually expands, but the overall matter and the universe remains the same. And um, so the, so those are the two ideas that we, we would say that cosmic sociology in this book is based on. So then the idea of dark forest, and, and you guys will have to support me on this because I don't have those in my notes exactly, but the idea being that any culture in any, any, um, on a planet that's aware of that has this idea of, well, is this other extraterrestrial culture out there going to be benevolent or what's the opposite word? Malevolent. 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 Yeah. Yes. And so the, and so you start to make this, this chain of assumptions is the other phrase that she uses. And so you assume, well, if they're you essentially assume the worst is the way that it gets backed up. And so one way or another, you think, well, either they might be benevolent, they might be benevolent, but they might think that we're malevolent. And so in the end, it all, it all comes down to like, well, we have to attack them and destroy them because either they think that we're malevolent and so they want to destroy us, or we think that they're malevolent and need to destroy them. And so in the end, the result is the same. And that's the dark forest of the universe. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, basically, if you, well, another, like, just kind of expound on that a little bit. If you know of this other uh, civilization, even if they're super primitive, there's also the idea of the explosion of technology. So at any right. point in time, um, any sort of life can pretty rapidly, especially in cosmological terms, transform into a true kind of superpower that could wipe them out just as easily as you could wipe them, you know? So that's another thing where even if you can't really even communicate all that well, if you could, the chain of suspicion still like logically forces you to eliminate them or not know that you exist. And then either way, even if they're super primitive, you have to destroy them or, except that you will soon be destroyed mm -hmm. because the same logic they'll come to the same conclusion mm -hmm. so yeah essentially the dark forest is the idea that everybody is a kind of silent predator and if you are aware of them then they're coming for you mm -hmm. and vice versa mm -hmm. so um yeah the the logic of space is harsh essentially mm -hmm. and again that's like to to bring back the uh the five words or less description. That is why once, um, you know, our hero Luigi uh, gets to the end and he tells the Trisolarians who he knows they're coming, but he says, if you continue on this path, I'm going to send out a signal to the to the universe. They will let everybody know exactly where we are mm -hmm. and we're both going to get wiped out. And that's kind of the ultimate, um, I know, sort of doomsday device that, you know, knowledge of that means that he has kind of ultimate power to 
set the terms with the Trisolarians. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's uh, for pretty sure. dark. So dark. Yeah. So dark. But something I thought uh, was interesting in terms of not only like how strong the science is in this book, but how strong just the logic it is, which like logic is kind of a branch of math a little bit. It's a very sciencey kind of thing as well. And so when he comes up with the dark forest idea based on those two axioms given by you and Gia in the beginning, like it's really a complex idea that he lays out in a pretty understandable way. Um, one other mention of like the logic of this book was when they talk about the wall facers smile. Yeah. So part of the wall facers idea was that they're not going to tell anybody what their plans are and earth has to give them the resources they want, even if it seems absurd because they can't let anybody know what they're actually up to. So like a wall facer can never explain themselves to, to like anybody else in the world because they always might think that they're, you know, let it, like leading them down a different path intentionally or deceiving them. And so it's kind of a weird wall of deception where they can never be understood by anybody because they always think they might be lying. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. The logic stuff in this book was amazing as well. It's a, it's a man fuck. <laughs> that's, that's our uh, ultimate strategy to uh, fight against aliens. Mm-hmm. She was our brain. Yeah. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. I mean, I, that is super interesting too. So if, I mean, the premise of this being that Trisolarians, they um, have telepathy with among themselves. And so they can, you know, no thoughts private. Everything they think can be thought by anyone else. And so first of all, what does that do to you as a culture? You know, if, if, if no thought is private, how does that evolve a civilization? I think that in and of itself is an interesting question, which maybe will be explored in death's end when we really meet the Trisolarans. Who knows? I don't even want to guess at this point. And, um, but then, so then the opposite of that becomes, as you said, these wall facers who are their, their key task is, your real plans have to be only in your head. They can't be shared with anyone. And furthermore, you need to be sneaky like a fox and lay all these other plans to divert your true plans. And so I I think that two things, one, you know, what does that do to you as a person, as a wall facer? I think the other one that we don't really get into in this book, but what does that do to you just as an entire culture, as a Trisolaran, for instance, you know, I think that that complete that that evolves a culture in a very particular way that it would make sense that oh we all recognize that we have this unstable three sun galaxy mm-hmm. let's we all we're all thinking the same thing we need to just go find a new universe with a stable sun we all agree on that I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that that maybe gets to some of the motivation of why would why would the Trisolarans even not care about? Well, yeah, we got to exterminate another the human race, but like, who who cares? Like, none of us have guilt, or if we have guilt about that, we all have guilt about that because we're all sharing thoughts, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and yeah, one of the things also, and like the same line of thought that 
and I can't remember exactly who he's talking to or if it's mentioned, but like the second chapter, there's communication between um, a person on Earth and a Trisolaran who's basically the, the Earthling is planning on stopping whatever Earth resistance that there is. And, and that's like a big, it's kind of a subplot to the whole book, but the Trisolarian doesn't understand again, what deception means. Yes. It's literally incomprehensible. And so he's describing it to the Trisolarian, like, oh, this is what it is. And this is how it's working. And then once the Trisolarian finally figures out how it works and what it, he means, he's like, oh, we definitely have to take out the earthlings now. Yeah. A being that can hide their thoughts is you know, an ultimate menace to the universe. (laughs) Um, You're talking about the chain of suspicion sort of idea as well. I mean, there might not exist a chain of suspicion if the the earthlings were also like Trisolarians and couldn't hide what they actually thought. Yeah. Um, Right. That, That chain of suspicion really does depend then on the ability to deceive or to not say what you mean. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, for for example, like I think he used is a is a book written by a uh, ancient China, you know, a, a a war book, you know, like kind of the art of war kind of thing. It's three countries he mentioned. <laughs> so it's like uh, two countries are uh, uh, fighting each other, and uh, uh, both their armies actually are on the road. So this guy's uh, um, his his stress list. Strategist of the country, uh, he uh, got nothing in his castle. In the country, it's like kind of like a, a head castle or something. There's only uh, women and children inside the castle, mm-hmm. and their army actually faster than their country. So they came to the came down to the really really near the castle. What he gonna do, right? Mm-hmm. What he gonna do? So he came out of the way. Just he gonna manifest them. He went there, went down there, opened the gate, opened the gate of the castle, playing a uh, instrument, just just doing that, and the head of their army, the enemies, just like, what the fuck is going on here? Are we gonna attack this castle or not? Huh. He he's so relaxing, just playing an instrument, like, like he got back up or something. Yeah. So they actually backed up, and. Uh, Therefore, lost the game, lost the war. That's how dangerous this medicine can be. Wow, that's that's a different book in Chinese. Yes, yeah, it's a it's a book written by a, probably like a, a three or four hundred years ago mm-hmm. by a Chinese author. Are there other just related to that too? Are there other? I mean, you were saying like setting the stage for some of like the Chinese history in this book. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that you think like? Interesting. To yeah, know. irrelevant. I don't remember. That's fine. I don't remember. There's I'm something not. definitely. I, I there's something. I, I had some impression, but this is the, the biggest one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and when you said three hundred, three or four hundred years in the in the past, you, you of course meant from your time, not well, from yes, not nineteen eighties China. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Um, there's, there's, there's one other, um, I guess, big idea in this book that I'd like to, well, a couple that I think to some extent relate to some of the other books that we have read. Uh, one being this idea that, 
And Luoji says several times that, like, I'm just an ordinary guy. Like, I'm just a regular dude. Um, so there's certainly this idea that ordinary people placed in, I, I think at some point says like unexpected circumstances and, but, but they are the ones to actually fulfill the mission, let's say. So I think that there's an interesting thing there. A similar thing though, there's this idea and like Ender's game again is very similar in this idea that. For Luoji, it's very hard to imagine saving humanity in the big abstract capital H humanity, but in the individual, you know, it's it's maybe easier. So like, you know, there's when they talk about that great ravine, it's like, well, yeah, like who cares about the survival of humanity into the millennia? We're talking about a kid dying right now. And and so like I think again there's this idea of like how do you how do you prioritize that or how do you place value on that or what's your motivation to quote unquote save humanity vicious air quotes a- anyway it's been a while since we've seen vicious air quotes on the on the pod by the way I just picked them up picked pulled them out of the drawer and used them for this occasion very nice yeah I mean with the return of uh, our prodigal son. It only makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, there, there was a scene here where they got dangerously close to the, Oh man, the, the Ender's game. Well, here's the thing. I think that we had a conversation at some point on this podcast where with Ender, well, here, here's what I'm trying to say. There's a bunch of dudes in this book, you know, every single one of them. And, uh, you know, we, we saw with Ender that, this idea that Valentine, you know, the whole world was worth saving because of her. But again, that's kind of like a, she's, she's a pretty passive character in that regard and doesn't really have much say in the matter. I think it's similar in this book with, um, uh, Luoji's wife and child to some extent being held as a bargaining chip by the UN or whoever it was to say like, well, you want to see your wife and your wife, do you really, you know, how much does she matter to you? If she matters to you, you'll save the earth. And, uh, you know, that's fine as far as like the idea of an individual or like all of humanity, like I get that. But again, like if we're going to talk about like a female character having agency, that's problematic. (laughs) Yep. I agree. I mean, and the only, um, I mean, in the future, in this book, so 200 years from the time that the book starts, there are um, at least big time like starship captains who are female Mm -hmm. uh, that they kind of mention specifically. But then it ends up being like almost every person who has gotten um, who has hibernated the hibernators or whatever. They're the ones who deal with setbacks and they're the ones who end up being the saviors and all the people that we met previously, you know, before this 200 year time gap have just been, yeah, the the kind of male protagonists. So yeah, there's never, well, except for you and Gia, who again kind of lays the whole, um, I don't know, all the commandments for how this thing is going to play out. So she kind of has a, um, you know, a hand in everything, but otherwise, yeah, it's all dudes that uh, <laughs> save the world. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I did. I did see that connection as well because towards the end, it's like it was all about love. That's how we did it. That's what America, or that's what <laughs> humans have. And it was yeah, from the the male perspective and the saving the woman that he loved instead of vice versa. Yeah. So. I I only have I only have I really like I've kind of gone through my notes here. Um, I'm still curious about uh, D- Dyson. What's up? Are you feeling sleepy? A little bit. Okay. I'm not going to say the word to to do that thing. Okay. Okay. Well, I I really in my notes I I've, I have one more thing I want to say and it's not doesn't matter, but. <laughs> I feel like I want to bring it up because... <laughs> Are you going to say it? There's a long list of all of the battleships that were destroyed at the very end. And um, not mentioned in any particular way, but they're all called out by name. And I just want to pour one out for the Starship Thanksgiving. <laughs> lost lost to the uh, the droplet. But uh, I don't. I don't know that we've ever named our pod John, but I, I. I think that we should think about it, and I think that um, the the Starship Thanksgiving is not a bad place to start. I mean, I feel like the rest of them have names like, yeah, well, like the uh, the, the Enterprise, the Enterprise, the, the Millennium Falcon, the Millennium Falcon, the Bowser Galactica, and then. Uh, but Star who, Wars. Who can forget Battlestar Thanksgiving? No one can forget that. Timeless. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I've got other notes here. Yeah. Um, How about you? I'm, I'm, I'm looking. Well, I guess. Okay. Uh, you go ahead. You go. You go. I was. I was you, thinking. I was thinking the 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 code. The possibility of coexistence between between two civilizations. I think uh, Liu, the author Liu Cixin, he he, he gave the a metaphor about the 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 pyramid uh, in front of Louvre, the museum mm-hmm. is it's a perfect example about two extreme culture actually can being together and looks pretty damn good. So, I'm thinking it's a it's a question, ultimate question, worse to think about. The, you know, are we gonna get along with another yeah. another alien or not? Alien? Are we gonna have a beer with them or not? Mm-hmm. So, I just want to have a yeah. beer with some aliens. Absolutely. Stay tuned for our that's, future podcast, Beer with an Alien. That's pretty much, and and we're the aliens, so it's perfect. Exactly. Um ties in as well to what I was saying kind of briefly earlier about the language um, merging that happens in this book as well with like Chinese and English kind of, yeah, kind of melding into the future language. Uh, yeah. There is a big sub theme of that for sure. People finding a way to get along despite, you know, dark forests, if you, if you will. So yeah, that's yeah, yeah. very insightful. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I, well, two things. One, I've, one of the things there's this idea of this project sunshine, which is like, so how do we deal with this trisolarans? Do we offer them some distant planet in the galaxy? And we are in charge of, do we give them Mars? That's a little bit nicer. 
or do we talk about integrating them into our human civilization? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's, it's a very interesting question of how do you, if it's truly extraterrestrial species, how do you, how do you cohabitate? The other thing though, I think, again, I just want to point out Dyson uh, using that example of the Louvre and the pyramid that was added onto that building. By the way, the architect of all the pyramids is a Chinese guy. What's his name? I've called his name. Sisson Leo designed the pyramid and also. <laughs> and, uh, no, I, I just wanted to make a note that you read that scene at, at the Louvre with the pyramid and the architecture blending. In the same way that you read The Dark Forest as meaning more than it says, where I was like, yeah, it's just the Louvre. Cool. Great. Been there, done that. Good job. Thank you. Now go um, and now I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to bring us into another uh, short, I guess, more personalized, just me section of Boy, Your Guest to Tears, because you got in the years way early. I didn't yeah. have a chance to uh, add my two so, tiers. Bore long. Yep. So I only had two. Well, there was a lot actually that I remembered, but two that I'll bring up. Um, one being, again, an Ender's Game thing. I was thinking about the Mosquito Swarm uh, battleship formation idea Yeah. put put forward by one of the wall facers. I believe that um, was... That just uh, reminded me... Tyler of the United States of America, President Harrison Ford. USA, USA. Oh, uh, yep, him. That, but it reminded me, though, of the buggers. Like, it's the way that the buggers worked. Yeah. Um, they were going to have a single commander that could control all of them sort of individually or as one unit. So it was a swarm mentality instead mm-hmm. of an individual action mentality. Anyways, just one thing that reminded me of Ender's Game. And this is maybe this may be a deeper one that that ties in slightly to my previous uh, segment. Is this a joke or what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel like this book reminded me in a weird way of Sirens of Titan, where there was a lot of like huge, not necessarily coincidences, because obviously the author of this book is going to write about the people who have a huge role in the events that occur but it seemed like there was almost like an absurd and kind of funny, um, what, what do I want to say? Uh, like passing off of responsibility between people. So right away we see, um, and I can't remember her name all of a sudden, the very first chapter who... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. So she passes off her kind of responsibility to the universe uh, to Luigi. Yeah. And then Luigi's our main protagonist for the whole thing. And it almost gets killed. There's one, there's like two, a two page section of this book where he almost gets killed six times. And, um, big, big, she saves him over and over again. Uh Remember that Luigi and big, she, I remember you remember that. So anyways, uh, And it's just like these absurd coincidences that kind of happen over and over again that at a certain point take on like a slapstick kind of humorous uh, appeal. But again, I don't know if that's like a poor translation or if it actually is funny. But at the end, 
it just seemed like the way that it was solved was too kind of coincidental and also was kind of existential in a Kurvonigat-ish way. Yeah. Where it seemed like the stakes were actually super low, even though we went through 500 pages of kind of proving how high they were. Mm-hmm. So anyways, like the overall tone in a strange way reminded me of Science of Titan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for, for a long time in this book, I mean, that was... I was thinking a similar thing with like um, childhood's end, where there is a very the spaceships arrive, they show up, people shoot an atomic bomb at them, it doesn't work, and then it's like, whoa, what are we gonna do? Whereas this book, it is like, here's every detail of what we're gonna do, and um, yeah, the, the the stakes in it seem kind of different. There, there's only one part in this book I remember. I made a note of where and actually at this point i can't remember if it's his imaginary girlfriend or his actual girlfriend at the louvre and she says something like so are can can you actually defeat the aliens and i think that's the only time maybe that it actually says the word like aliens the rest of the time it's like this this kind of like you know whispered hallways we only kind of half talk about them and she's the only one who actually calls them out like they're aliens. How are we going to defeat them? And, you know, the rest of the book is like this very elaborate series of events, as you say, like almost too coincidental to for things to work out the way they work out and um, steeped in math and logic and science where she's just like, are we going to defeat these aliens or what? Like, come on. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, and that, that actually was for sure the real uh, girlfriend that became his, his wife. It wasn't yeah, it wasn't the imaginary one. It'd be even funnier maybe if it was the the one that he invented. But that was another that kind of same thing of coincidence where he creates this literary character in his mind, in his imaginary girlfriend. That oh. Dashi is going to go find a real one yeah. and he does and then she actually has kind of a weird subverti- subversive plot yeah uh, yeah it's great but yeah it just seems c- kind of funny to me maybe I'm just picking up on stuff that old Joel Martinson put in there unnecessarily or unintentionally but I, I, in a weird way I think this is actually a pretty funny book the, the humor is way way deeper than um than like a Douglas Adams, but I think almost on the same level as a Kurt Vonnegut, where even in spite of hopelessness, there's still, you know, kind of a perverse joy to be found. Yeah. Yeah. By the end, for sure. Yeah. Which I really didn't, like, again, like I said, with three by problem, I just assumed it. I assumed that it would get super dark and that would be, a, we'd be in the dark forest and we'd be stuck in the dark quicksand. Um, yeah, I, I, I meant at some point to ask you, John, you know, if, if you were, because at some point, um, Dasha is like, let's make a drawing of your imaginary girlfriend. And uh, I, I meant to ask you if, you know, if, if, if you want to d- describe what, what you would say to Dasha, but, you know, I won't put you through that. I was just going to say, you know, nine legs and smarter than me. Simple. <laughs> Two legs, and that's all I care about. Nice to see you. Uh, 
And that brings me to the second to last segment that I want to do today. Your listener challenge. Ooh, ooh. Um, I have to find a page here, so give me a moment. It, it All right. Okay. One Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to stall for you, but you got it. Okay. <laughs> well, it occurs to me that we're in the listener challenge. You know how it works. It's a numerically based game that you can't win. Yay. It's so much fun. Uh, so, uh, I can't remember. Okay. So Heinz, the British feller, yeah. his wall facer program, his wall facer research, I guess he comes up with what's called a mental seal, which is a way to make people believe something that, uh, they don't necessarily want, want to believe logic or need to believe logically, uh, and so during their research phase of the mental seal, uh, they, they basically give people prepositions and then they, the, the subjects have to determine if they're true or false. And during one of them, um, they asked of radiation in the people's brains uh, during a preposition. And if that preposition is false and they give them a blast of radiation, then they'll believe it to be the opposite um, throughout their whole life. Mm-hmm. So anyways... One of the propositions, and this could have also been my axe to grind, but maybe not. We'll see. Proposition one of the second set of propositions, cats have a total of how many legs? And again, this is a proposition that is designed to be either true or false. Um, And so your listener challenge is to come up with the answer to this particular question. Uh, and as we all know, in in this preposition, uh, cats have a total of three legs. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the answer is three. That is your listener challenge. Nice to see you. I think that regardless of whether this proposition is true or false, it's an improvement on a four-legged cat. So it's not quite there, but we'll take what we can get. John, uh, was there in this, I don't remember that preposition actually, but I... So three meaning false is that is that true? So they expected obviously for them to respond to that one as it being false. Okay, uh, you know, and yeah. I think that it is false. But even if it was true, if you would give somebody a mental seal, they would believe that it's an uh-huh. improvement on cats having four legs. Well, what I'm saying in, in this in this instance and only this instance. I'm going to side with you because, well, I don't know if I am or not. I'm just going to throw some evidence to the jury and say that Garfield the cat, uh, famous, you know, hates Mondays, loves lasagna. I believe, by and large, is a two-legged creature. Uh, I I think he walks around in two legs. And, uh, I mean, he certainly, if... You know, if if he feels like it, he's just going to pick Odie up and drop kick him off the side of the table. And so I believe that he's a two-legged creature. So I guess in this case, yeah, three legs, also a false proposition is what I'm saying. Uh, thank you. And that's how we play. <laughs> uh, what game are we playing again? I don't even it's, remember. Uh, Listener the, Challenge. Listener Challenge. As, as always, sponsored by Corellan Sweet Tea, Sweetest Tea in the Galaxy Sip, and Accidental Beans. 
Uh, we actually haven't had an advertisement for accidental beans yet, but um, accidental beans, you should eat them. First one. That's our new sponsor, accidental beans. Accidental beans. Uh, yep, that's it. And we're back. All right, do well, we, we got, any, got anything else before rating systems? I think we're ready for it. And All right, Dyson, then. Do you have anything else to say about this book before we rate it? Uh, it's a good book that I read. That's that sounds like rating systems. Jesus. <laughs> After that, t- two, two hours of sleep as a sandwich. Forgot how this works. Being sad a sandwich, <laughs> not as a sandwich. So where, where, have we, where have we come down? I'm just going to interject here. The hypothesis was Dyson gets sleepy. He turns into tiny Dyson. Curls up inside of a sandwich. Sandwich is my or beer bag. can. What or a beer can? Or I think anything. He can curl up inside anything when like... he turns into tiny Dyson. I can curl into your ears. <laughs> but why would? But you? I feel like, and that's great. No, I want you to. That's great. But I feel like I won't a sandwich girls sandwich is has much to be more. in the room. I feel like the sandwich is like is the magic potion. It's the eye of Newt. Poe frog. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, take a look. It's in a book. Rating systems. Hi, welcome to Rating Systems. I'm John Love, and with me as always are people to rate this book. Hi, people to rate this book. Hi, John. All right, let's start clockwise with Tiny Dyson. What do you rate this book? Okay, uh, what's the rating on the uh, three-body problem? I don't remember. That was before your nap. So, yeah, that was, um, you, you rated it. You remember. Okay, this is... Uh, uh, so, uh, based on five stars, this is um, 4.8888888. Uh, Ooh. Repeating eight? Very good. Uh, Brent, what do you got? I'm, I'm just writing this one in the series that we've read, including a three-body problem of the Dark Forest and potentially in the future Death's End, which I assume is going to be about death ending. That's how I read a title, Dyson. I'll keep my open mind on that. Hey, this isn't predict future books, Corner. <laughs> This is rating systems. Sorry, sorry. So we've I've read two of them. I think I like the three body problem slightly more, so I'm going to rate it uh, two out of three. All right, I'm going to go with a solid one point nine five legs out of two legs. Nice. That's that's the highest, actually. Pretty high. Yeah. And that's how we play rating systems. Why don't you remember to take a look? It's in a book. Rating systems. And we're back. Thanks, John, and thank you, Carol. Take Sweet a TV. look. It's we're in a book. book. Rating, rating systems. systems. The, the first one was an advertisement for rating systems, and the second one was the theme song to exit the segment. Oh, beautiful. Rating Systems is a sponsor now. I love yeah, it. They, they sponsored just that segment. <laughs> they paid just enough. Yeah. 
So we'll that paywall. Well, um, oh, Dyson, you're getting so you're getting so tiny. <laughs> you're getting so tiny. I'm I'm tiny now. <laughs> Should I yell? Hello? And am I hearing me up there? I can't even see you. It's tiny Dyson. Where'd he go? Uh, I'm going to set a sandwich. I'm going to set a hologram projection sandwich by the doggy door. Check my sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) Put a sandwich out for tiny Dyson. That's that's what you do during Passover. (laughs) Well, I guess, wow. So maybe the search for Dyson does continue. You just gotta find the sandwich, right? We'll find him. I'm not worried. Well, John, um, I would certainly love to read Death's End in the future. I think we will, but um, I think we're left with only one thing we are contractually required to do with our sponsor, Carol and Sweet Tea, the sweetest tea in the galaxy. Thanks, Sip. We're back, <laughs> and that's a little thing called wrapping it out. <laughs> Yo. Yo. Dark forests. Can't get no rest. So loud outside. Coming down that slide. There's a playground in the dark forest for some reason. It's coming to you, not committing treason. I'm coming up and down that slide. I'm coming from the far and the wide. Tiny Dyson living in a sandwich. Tiny Dyson doesn't have to say much. She's our favorite teammate in the future. Tiny favorite teammate. Getting that suture. Yep. 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 The dark forest. I'm talking about black forest ham. You see me in a sandwich, I'm D. I'm your man. You see me in the streets, I'm going to say, hey, I'm Dyson. I like worms. What's going that way? I am. I'm Dyson. I'm on the Wiggler Trail. He's got something like a snail. After the Holy Grail. That's Dyson in your mail. Fox. He's got a lot of mail. He's like a male fox because he's slash. And he's a cool guy and a great teammate. I love him and I miss him already. Relate. Sure. Bye. See ya. Seven worms for Dyson. <laughs> it occurs to me that we had the opportunity to do seven worms for Dyson. <laughs> I know. I made Dyson. I made it. Dyson a sandwich made out of seven worms. So it goes. I do like the book actually. Yeah. yeah. Me too. I don't believe some bullshit it's, uh, about some facts about universities. There, I don't believe that. You know, but it's it's, what? it's still a good book. Like when we talk about like sometimes we talk about this professor from this university that kind of thing. You know. I was like, bullshit, you know, you know, I hate, I, no, I don't believe that, I don't buy that, but. Are we still recording? I want yeah. the real D. Yeah, let's get the tiny Dyson.
Uh, welcome to Tiny Dyson Corner. Yes, no, no. I'm a holographic projection who can shrink myself down to any size, so I'm the same size as Dyson. And I'm one of Tiny seven worms. I'm one of seven worms. <laughs> Just waiting to be eaten. <laughs> Oh, I really... thought you were going to be Brent, who just folded himself down into a real compact paper fold. Nope. You'd be wrong. But, but you do look like a worm. I'm just a wriggly little worm. Bred for one purpose. To be eaten. Bred for one purpose. To be on bread. <laughs> and then to be eaten. What's the scoop, Dyson? What's a what? Scoop. It's a worm the, the, word. Oh. Dyson's going to have a tough time eating these worms in future podcasts if they keep developing relationships with him. I'm, and when he's tiny, Dyson, I'm just exactly the same size as him. He wears you like a boa. Hey, you ride around my back like I'm a, like I'm a huge sandworm <laughs> from the planet Dune. I miss that planet. Whee! <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, I'm just going to dig down in the dirt. See you guys. Bye. Bye. I'm sitting in the railway station. Got a ticket for my destination. Stands my suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home Where my thoughts escaping Home Where my music's playing Home Where my love lies waiting silently for Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound, I wish I was Songs again, I'll play the game and pretend. Mm-hmm. But all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness and harmony. I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home. Escaping home, where my music's playing home, where my love lies waiting silently for me, silently for me.